Our parable this morning comes from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, when I was in elementary school and even probably up into junior high and high school, I always found that group projects were like a complete pain to be involved with. And I know this is probably going to be shocking to you all, but I was the kind of student who would regularly do way more work than was actually required of me on any given project. And so group work, especially when I couldn't choose the people to be in my group with me, really drove me crazy because it usually meant that I would do my usual amount of overwork and then I would end up doing the work of some layabout group member who is unreliable and not to be trusted in the work that they would contribute to the group. And then, of course, the real cherry on top, we would get a good grade, and that lazy group member would get a good grade based on all of my hard work. And it just felt like one of the great injustices of my youth. Group member or group projects, you know, I had a couple good ones through the years where I got to choose my teammates, where we had a good time working together as a team. And in college, there was a group project where we were supposed to analyze this, like, Kyrgyz poem about a man who chases this woman who's turned into a goat up a mountain, and that group project turned into a date, which ended up turning into the marriage I'm currently in today, but that's probably for a different time than this morning. Group projects in general, with those few cases aside, were generally just so much more work for me. And I didn't love other people getting good grades on my behalf. And then today's parable, as I read it, this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it kind of started to feel a little bit in some ways to me like a group project. So this parable takes place on a pretty normal day at the temple. This good, upstanding, thoughtful, if a bit pompous, religious leader comes to pray. And he stands off by himself, and he starts to pray, thank you, God. Thank you that I'm a pretty good guy. I'm glad that I'm not greedy or adulterous. I'm glad I'm not really bad like that guy over there. I do the things you want me to. I give money to the church, and I honor the Sabbath day. So thank you. And his prayer, on the surface, it sounds a little bit pompous, I know. But when you think about what he's actually praying it's not too far from something we might actually pray on a Sunday morning. I mean, this guy is basically saying, I'm really glad that I'm a religious person. I'm glad that I do the things that I'm supposed to do. I'm glad for who I am. 
We might find his language a bit puffed up, but really the content isn't too far off. And the paintings of this particular scene, I searched online to see how artists had depicted this throughout history. And a lot of times in the paintings, you have this picture of the Pharisee, and he's like standing up in front of the altar with his hands raised, with like people gathered around. And that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says he was praying by himself or to himself. He wasn't making a big show of this. So the Pharisee, you know, he might be a bit pompous, but I don't think he's that bad of a guy as we sometimes hear in this story. And then there's this other guy, the tax collector. And we're familiar enough from Scripture with tax collectors. We know if we see the word tax collector, we're supposed to think there's a sinner right there. Because tax collectors were, in fact, bad guys in their days. They collected taxes on behalf of Rome, which was occupying their territories. So they were collaborators with this government that the local people didn't necessarily like. But collecting taxes in and of itself is not a sinful act. What was problematic about what the tax collectors really did is that they were swindlers on top of being tax collectors, generally speaking. So if Rome wanted a dollar, a tax collector would tell the random little yokel that Rome really wanted two dollars. And then they would pocket one dollar for themselves and pass one dollar up to the government. And that's what's sinful about the tax collector's behavior in general, is the stealing and the lying, not necessarily the collaborating with Rome bit. And so this lying, stealing, sinner of a tax collector comes into the temple one day And he stands off by himself with his eyes downcast. And he starts pounding his hand against his chest, saying, Oh, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And again, this is a prayer we're pretty familiar with. In our tradition, we pray a prayer of confession every week as a part of our worship service. And our prayer, although the words might change slightly, is essentially, Oh, Lord, be merciful to us, for we are sinners. And so... Like many of the parables that we've seen so far, we have these two characters who are fairly understandable and relatable to us, and they're set up for some kind of contrast. We're supposed to compare the two in some way or another. This righteous and self-assured religious leader and the repentant tax collector. They're both in prayer. They're both at the temple. And so on one hand, the interpretation of this story sort of feels obvious to us. We expect Jesus to do what we might call the conventional, unconventional turn of this. We expect Jesus to say that the prayer of the tax collector is better than the prayer of the pompous Pharisee, or something like God likes the repentant sinner better than the puffed-up, self-righteous religious leader. And maybe, maybe that is what this parable is saying. That very much could be the whole point of this story. Because Jesus goes on to say, this one, the tax collector, uh, he's, excuse me, this one, the tax collector, he is justified instead of this one, the Pharisee. So yeah, maybe Jesus is telling us in this story that the prayers that are humble and offered by a sinner are better than the pompous and puffed up prayers of those who are already righteous. Maybe. But that, quite frankly, to me, is a really boring way to read this passage. It's sort of predictable. It's a little white bread. And the parables, as we've studied them more and more, I've come to realize the parables are anything but boring. 
They're not supposed to be something that we already have the answer to. They're supposed to provoke us a little bit, to challenge us, to offer a different twist than we expect on the, word, on the world. So I went looking a little bit more into this parable, and this line that Jesus says that the tax collector is justified instead of the Pharisee turned out to be a little bit more problematic depending on which translation of the Bible you picked up. Different English translations actually use really different words in that sentence. And it made me start to think about words that we have in English, and all languages have these, where one word can actually mean like six or seven different things, and it all depends on the context, how we hear the word. Some of them can actually mean exactly the opposite of themselves. So for instance, like take the word to cleave in English. If you're going to say that the child cleaved to her mother, you're going to say that the child and the mother held tightly to one another. Two things held very close to each other. But if you cleave a log, you split it into two separate pieces. So to cleave can actually mean to bring together or to take apart. It can mean the opposite of itself. The same is true with words like um, to weather. You could have to weather mean that something disintegrates due to the weather, like the deck was weathered over time. Or to weather means that something could have come through mostly in one piece, like the ship weathered the storm. It held fast. So to weather means its own opposite. And we rely on the context of what someone's saying to figure out which word or which definition of the word they're actually using. And that seems to be what's happening in this little sentence that Jesus says as well. Because some versions of the Bible take this little word and translate it instead of. The tax collector was justified instead of the Pharisee. But it turns out in the Greek, that little word instead of can also mean alongside or because of. So other English versions of the Bible translate this sentence, the tax collector is justified alongside the Pharisee. So both of the men are justified in their prayers. Or the tax collector is justified because of the Pharisee. That the tax collector is made righteous because the Pharisee is already righteous. And all of a sudden, when I started to read these different translations, I realized that this parable is way more interesting than I ever thought it was because we really weren't expecting Jesus to say something like that. We can wrap our heads around the idea of a repentant sinner. We're pretty comfortable with that sort of trope. And, you know, in the world we live in today, we're surrounded by people who are doing good things but are sort of arrogant and full of themselves. We might call them self-righteous or something along those lines. And we don't really like those people that much. Self-righteousness isn't something we're all trying to attain in life. And so with the original reading of the parable, we're pretty okay with it. Like, we're okay that the pompous Pharisee gets a bit of his comeuppance and the righteous sinner gets to be justified. That's okay. And even this reading that maybe the repentant sinner, the tax collector, and the Pharisee are justified alongside one another, they both get justified before God, we're okay with that because we like the idea that Jesus loves all people everywhere. So, okay, everyone gets a car, sort of the Oprah version of reading this particular parable. We can be okay with that. But the final reading here, the tax collector is justified because of the Pharisee. That's the reading that is much harder to understand and far more challenging to consider. And the fact that it's so much more challenging makes me think that that may have been something Jesus was hinting at. 
something he was asking his people to consider, or maybe just something he's asking us to consider today. Because I tend to think that Jesus should be a little challenging for us to hear and to think about. And it's hard for us to read because it sounds really unfair in this passage. It sounds like a group project here. That the tax collector can go about swindling his neighbors out of money, collaborating with the Roman government, and then he can be justified because of all the good works, the fasting and the tithing and the praying and the church attendance and everything else that this Pharisee is already doing. It sort of sounds like the tax collector is getting an A for going out and partying all weekend while the Pharisee stays home on her Saturday night slaving over that group project to make sure that it gets turned in really, really well. Not that I'm still carrying any bitterness from grade school or junior high over this. But I mean, doesn't, doesn't that interpretation of this parable sort of sound more familiar to the Jesus we know in Scripture? The technical term for this is called communal righteousness. It's the idea that Jesus is always talking about in Scripture, and in fact it is still to this day the basis of the Jewish faith as it is lived in the world. The idea of communal righteousness is that the sins of a single person can affect the entire community, and that the righteousness of one person can also likewise bring the whole community up. So in the Jewish faith, the idea that when they worshipped at the temple, the sacrifice of one person, the priest, could work for the whole community of people who are gathered there. The work of one affects the all. And we actually still hold to this as Christians today. We pray it every single week in the Lord's Prayer. You just may not necessarily hear it all the time. In the Lord's Prayer, we don't say, you know, give me my daily bread or forgive me my sins. What we actually pray is communal language. We say, give us our daily bread or forgive us our debts as we together forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Again and again throughout scripture and even in our own tradition, we're being reminded over and over again, it's not about us as individuals, it's about all of us as a community, the community together. And this is sort of what the whole theology of Christianity is built on, this idea of communal righteousness, the idea that for all of us, we exist, we are given the gift of life because of the life and ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We are justified by one person and what he did. So again, this reading, the sinner is justified because of the righteous one. That sounds more like Jesus to me. And it sounds like the kind of community that Jesus is always asking us to be, always asking his disciples to live into. A place where the sinful nature of one person can, in fact, affect the whole or the righteousness of one person can lead everyone into a better way of being together. Now, as I got a little bit older uh, into high school and college and beyond, I started to realize that actually group projects weren't that bad, and it really wasn't that big of a deal if someone else got a good grade based on my work. Because the fact is, I still got a good grade on those projects, and the grades of other people in my class didn't matter to me. What should matter was my own grades and my own learning even more important than that A on a piece of paper. And by actually doing the work of those projects, of course, I actually learned 
what I was supposed to be learning. I internalized the work of that project. And if other people got a good grade because of me, so what? Like, that didn't take away from what I had already done. Now, that might have been an easier attitude to hold on to in school than it is to hold on to in real life, because it's hard for us when we see someone succeeding or doing well when we feel like maybe they've cheated the system, or maybe they haven't worked as hard as we have in life, and so why haven't they had the same sort of struggles? Why haven't they had to do the same thing to achieve what we have? And it very much fits cleanly in with our sort of American idea of like picking ourselves up by the bootstraps and all of that, that our individual effort should be what matters. But it turns out life really isn't about just our individual choices. We are affected every day by the choices other people around us make. Our air and our water, they're shaped by the ways that we as a bigger community, interact with our environment, the good ways and the bad ways. We collectively, for example, pay for public education. Even if you don't have a kid who's actually in the school system, we've all sort of decided as a community that together we pay for school because we think educated children are a good for society. It's a communal decision together. And our nation, it's shaped not just by Kelly's individual vote alone, but our nation is shaped by the votes of many people who come together to elect leaders to represent us. So we live every day in this world where the choices of others affect the way our community can exist. So um, when I unpacked the new pyramids this morning before coming into worship and I was sitting up here ironing them and putting them up, I was sort of struck by how appropriate they seem to be for this parable today. I love the image on them of this um, sort of spider webby interwoven sphere because I think it's a really cool visual for what Jesus is getting at in this parable. This idea that our lives are interwoven, they're intertwined with one another the prayers of one, the choices of one person, they affect the other people in that system, in that sphere. And so, again, the tax collector is justified maybe because of the work of the Pharisee. And that's a challenging way to live our lives together in community. It's hard to imagine that we should be righteous and thoughtful people in part because that might rub off on others, that others might benefit from our good deeds or perhaps even harder, flip that around and think that we might benefit from the good deeds of others. And it's hard, but it sounds like Jesus. It sounds like something we're supposed to be listening to. It sounds like how Jesus taught. It sounds like how he spoke. And it certainly sounds to me like how and why he died giving up his life on the cross so that others might experience life. And then he comes back in the resurrection and invites us into this new life, this new community, and he reminds us in that resurrection that we are supposed to be a community of faith, that we are supposed to love and serve one another, that we should go out, we should baptize all people, and that the choices we together make should be choices that build up and bolster the kingdom of God here on earth, the kingdom of God for all people. Amen.